invite you to take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the title of the sermon as we step into this new chapter of Scripture, and a very uh, uh, exciting chapter of Scripture, really one of the, the, those highlight chapters in the Bible as we get to Philippians 3, verses 8 through 10. Uh, this evening, the title of our message, Rejoice in the Lord. It's not uncommon for we humans to become discontent over time. Things that once satisfied due to their, their familiarity can become stale. We begin looking for something new, not, not necessarily something better all the time, sometimes maybe even something worse, but at least it's something different, right? At least it's something new. One of the major focuses of Paul, as, as we well know, within the scope of the epistles, especially Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, those prison epistles, is the danger of legalizers, men and women who elevate the law above grace, who would seek to bind Christians' minds and actions to a set of legal expectations rather than to a set of, of, of principles of grace. Those who claim that there is some external requirement uh, to being or becoming the children of the living God. And there are any number of reasons why a person can fall into such a state. It can be a, a measure of ignorance as it relates to the preeminence of grace in the lives that is intended in the lives of the church and the lives of the believers. It may be that there's a, a measure of comfort in binding oneself to a system of rules whereby they can feel as though they can gauge their personal merit and achievement and, and know generally they can look at the, the thermometer of what they're doing and, and, and know how they stand. For some, it becomes a cloak of sin and of hypocrisy. That they have an external veneer of things that they are holding to with great fervency and in doing so, they live in a manner of self-righteousness that cloaks their sin and hypocrisy. And for all who would engage in, in its expectations, at the very least, at best, one might say, these concepts, the legalizing, legalism is often what we call it, is a distraction from Christ, for it cannot be otherwise. In today's context, Paul is going to deal with this issue in the Philippian church. Now, uh, when you think of the Philippian church, when you think of the book of Philippians, you don't think of the law and grace, right? When I think of Galatians, I think of the law and grace. Uh, we, we talked about it pretty heavily in 1 Timothy when we were there. Um, we might see it, uh, we, Colossians chapter 2 is pretty heavy into the concept as well, and 3 actually. So we could think of it in, in Colossians. Uh, Colossians and Ephesians are actually kind of sister books, right? They, they say almost the same thing uh, among them, so we can see it in Ephesians. But Philippians, mm, I wouldn't necessarily, that wouldn't be my first or second or, or, or even third choice as it would relate to this topic. And it, it is very much so a side kind of element here. It's not Paul's primary point by any means. We, we see this exhortation very, very much in context as we consider it in the book of Philippians and in chapter 3 here. And, and this exhortation is somewhat unique as it relates to the law in Philippians compared to the other books where Paul will speak to it. And the reason why I believe it's unique is because it seems as though the legalizers that were, were rather plaguing the churches of Galatia when you think of the, the region of Galatia, when you think of that Asia Minor area, and you think of Ephesians and Colossians and all of the churches in Galatia, uh, Antioch and, and Lystra and such, it seems as though it was not a direct problem in the Philippian church. 
Maybe the legalizers hadn't necessarily encroached into Macedonia and Achaia yet, as we, we would see them in the region of Galatia. Remember that that region of Asia Minor, what's now Turkey, in order to go to Philippi, right, Paul got the Macedonian call, and then he crossed over into what is effectively Greece, into the regions of Macedonia, and he went to um, Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica, and then he went to Athens, and then he went to Colossae, right, as he went from Macedonia into Achaia. And so maybe that area had not necessarily been plagued by this danger yet, but when Paul sees a divided church, as Paul is looking at a divided church here in Philippi, living in a manner of disunity, there's no doubt that he saw a weakened church, which, if they were not vigilant, particularly in that time of weakness, until they could heal, right? Remember the analogy from two weeks ago of Epaphroditus being sick nigh unto death, but the Lord healed him, and how we connected that to perhaps how Paul saw the church of Philippi. And in this weakened state, Perhaps Paul thought, well, there may be a minor or a, a possible susceptibility to the deceits and confusions of what Paul would call in Galatians another gospel. And one of the most powerful of ways to avoid such error is to keep our focus on Christ. And this is what Paul exhorts at the beginning of Philippians 3. He says in verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you, it is safe. In the first two chapters of the epistle, Paul has been focused heavily on the call unto unity within the church, that every man should look not on his own things, but on the things of others, that each would esteem other better than themselves. This call has been serious, and it has been urgent as it relates to Paul's warnings, both for the health of the church and for the testimony of the church, right? Those are the two things. Paul warned against disunity as it related to the health of the church, and then he warned against disunity as it related to the capacity of the church to share the gospel effectively. And as with many of the problems that arise, both in our own hearts as well as in a church context, disunity is a problem which we might be able to track back to a loss of perspective, taking our eyes off of Christ and putting them upon something else. Uh, in the case of disunity, most usually the thing that we take our eyes off of Christ and put them on is ourselves, right? We become selfish, then we begin murmuring and disputing, and then things continue from there. So Paul calls the minds of the church back to the most simple of exhortations. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It is really simple, isn't it? It's, it's a, a, a fairly uh, basic concept, but it has a real depth to it. Rejoice in the Lord. You're murmuring you're disputing, you're troubled. Finally, my brethren, after all of the other things I've exhorted you unto doing, don't forget to rejoice in the Lord. The word rejoice here is a fairly common word within the scope of the New Testament, and it's a very common word in Philippians. This is actually the fifth time that we've seen this word rejoice come up in the book of Philippians, and we'll see it another two times before the epistle ends. And in this verse, Paul connects his exhortation specifically with the things which he has already written. 
the church is divided. Epaphroditus had brought troubling news to Paul of the church's condition. The solution was to bear the mind of Christ, right? To assume upon themselves a determination to love and to submit one to another. And perhaps as they were contemplating this exhortation, maybe as in, in a similar way to you as you contemplated this exhortation, we've had a, a great amount of both exhortation and, and, and somewhat exercise in this over the last several months as a church. And if you're anything like, well, me and like humans, then you might have, think of this idea of, okay, look not every man on his own thing, but every man on the things of others. Let each esteem other better than themselves. And you just kind of, oh, that's going to be exhausting. And that's going to be frustrating. And that's going to be, but, but then Paul he, he tells them all of this, bear the mind of Christ, and then he says, and, and, and don't forget, rejoice in the Lord. Don't forget to rejoice in the Lord. The solution to have that mind of Christ, it's not, it, it is, it's to one another, right, that we do this, but it's not necessarily for one another in the purest sense. It is. I want to bless you. You want to bless me. I want to, to, to care for you. You want to care for me. We want to be unified. We want to seek one another. I love you. I serve you. I pour myself into you. You love me. You serve me. You pour yourself into me. But the reason why we devote ourselves to one another in such a direct and determined way is because of the God that you and I both serve, who did not pull back when it was his turn to serve me. And God forbid that I should pull back when it's my turn to serve another. I rejoice in service because I rejoice in the God who has called me and taught me how to serve. I rejoice in suffering because I rejoice in the God who has both called me and taught me what it is to suffer. I rejoice in who God made me because I rejoice in the God who made me the person that I am. My contentment, my joy, my peace, the things which make for unity, these are not rooted in the actions and reactions of the church necessarily itself, but in the God who built the church, in the God who redeemed his people and called his people, in the God who has called us not just unto himself, but then has called us to unite ourselves as a body of sanctified believers unto his intent and purpose. Now, what Paul has written to the church to this point has been somewhat grievous to him. As far as we know, uh, he, he has, however, not necessarily been in great tears as he's been writing these things, such as he was when he wrote to the church of Corinth. Recall in 2 Corinthians, when he spoke about writing that first epistle, he says it was with many tears that he put the, 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 those words onto that parchment and sent it to them, knowing uh, the, the tremendous burden in his heart and, and the, the, the longing for them to do what is right. And yet, he has still re reflected a strong degree of concern regarding the state of the church of Philippi. And that being said, much of the epistle to this point has expressed, been expressed in the context of joy and rejoicing. I told you this is the fifth time we've seen this idea of rejoice in the, in the book of Philippi, or Philippians, excuse me. 
And so great is this theme or is the usage of this word throughout the epistle that if you go to almost any commentary and you were to look at the theme of the book of Philippians, this is what I learned in seminary, this is what it has in almost every commentary, they would tell you that the theme of the book is joy. That Philippians is the book about joy. Now, I do disagree with this. I believe that the theme of the book is unity. And Paul just so happens to be reflecting his joy in the church while he's speaking to them of unity. But Paul does regularly speak of his own joy and rejoicing on the pages of, these epi of this epistle. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, he tells them that he's praying to the Lord with joy. Uh, he determines to rejoice in the dissemination of the gospel, even at the expense of himself in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. He is content to abide in his body of suffering and his state of imprisonment, if only it would further the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Philippians 1, verses 25 and 26. He exhorts the church to fulfill his joy by uh, assuming this like-mindedness in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. And he tells them that by living in this context of unity, he could rejoice in the day of Christ, and they could likewise rejoice in Philippians chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. So the book is certainly no stranger to the concept of joy. Joy has been the context of Paul's perspective as he has, has thought of the church. Joy has been the expected result of Paul's exhortations as they seek unto unity. So they will be able to rejoice with Paul and in Paul, rejoice in one another, rejoice with one another as they find unity in the faith. But rejoicing is not just a result. Rejoicing is not just a result in the Christian life. Rejoicing is also a determination in itself. And this is important. We don't just rejoice because things are good. We don't just rejoice when we, when we know exactly what God is doing, right? We rejoice in the Lord in all things. And this is the command that Paul gives here, that though it's grievous to hear the divisions among them, it's not grievous to write unto them of the remedy. He says, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things, not to rejoice, right? Not to rejoice. That's not what he says is grievous. <laughs> to write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. It's not that word grievous there, meaning indolent, tardy, irksome. It's not grievous to write unto them of the remedy, right? It's not grievous to write unto them to bring about a joy in the Lord. So he calls them to see things through a different lens. Paul rejoiced in suffering, if only that the gospel might spread. Paul rejoiced in service, if only the mind of Christ might be preeminent and the testimony of Christ might prevail. And this is Paul's call, boiled down to its most simple exhortation. Rejoice in the Lord. This is something that you can do that is certain, that is secure, that is safe. Just as all the law is fulfilled in one command, even in this, Galatians 5.14 tells us, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In much the same way, our relationship as a church one to another and our relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the outcomes of this standing in Christ are realized in this one call, rejoice in the Lord. Don't lose sight of the simplicity of the gospel, Christian. 
Don't lose sight of the joy of your salvation, Christian. Don't forget the simple joy that you are Christ and Christ is yours. Don't overlook the blessedness of your redemption. Don't get so caught up in, in a bickering. Don't get so caught up in the, in, the, in the little things. Don't get so caught up in the mindset of, of disagreement that you forget to rejoice in the Lord. That we forget our common Savior. It's easy to get distracted as we interact one with another. It's easy to get distracted when we face suffering for our faith. It's easy to get caught up in division and disagreement about points of doctrine or practice, but we're here to rejoice in the God of our salvation. We're a blessed part of God's eternal plan, being perfected unto an eternity before the Lord and in the joy of our Lord. And so often as we walk down this road, which for we who are in Christ leads inevitably to paradise, we can find ourselves spending our time deeply troubled. Maybe it's a trouble of spirit. Maybe it's a moaning and a groaning. Maybe it's a fighting and, a, and an, or maybe it's anger. Maybe it's fear. And maybe we've forgotten in the midst of all of the things that life call, brings our way to rejoice in the Lord. Don't forget to rejoice in the Lord. Paul reminds us why it is that we can serve one another with such a singleness of mind. Why it is we can gladly elevate the testimony of the gospel above ourselves. Because our rejoicing is not in getting your own way, is it? That is not your rejoicing. Your rejoicing is not in seeing your priorities and your viewpoints realized in the body, right? That is not your rejoicing. Your rejoicing is in the Lord. This is where you find your contentment. This is where we find our safety and security. Paul says it's not grievous, it's not tardy, it's not irksome, it's not difficult for me to tell you these things about how you can find this unity. And for you, this is safety. This is healing. This is health. And it all is brought back to this idea that we are going to keep our eyes and rejoice in the Lord. Disunity and selfishness, they strip us of our joy. But you know, so will false unity. A unity that is not found in the Lord. Say, well, there's a unity in, in the midst of, of this group. There's a unity in this church. Yes, but is that unity in the Lord? Or is that unity just in common interests? Is that unity just in common standards? Is that unity just in a common enemy? Sometimes that's the case, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so we find unity simply in a common enemy. If those are our points of unity, there will be no joy. There might be expedience, there might be convenience, but there won't be joy because joy comes to those who are rejoicing in the thing that is worthy of our rejoicing, rejoicing in the Lord. As Paul calls the church to unify, he, said, he, he again, and we've talked about this before, he doesn't just say unify around something. He tells them what to unify around. The mind of Christ rejoice in the Lord. We must beware lest we are lulled into a false sense of unity by unifying around something else other than Christ, by rejoicing in our own efforts, by rejoicing in uh, an idol rather than rejoicing in the Lord, by putting our confidence in something else other than Christ. And Paul was no stranger to this concept. He contended 
from the outset of his apostolic ministry against this very spirit in the church. This is kind of a back door to Paul starting to, to, to think back to the great issue of his day, which is legalism, Judaism in the church. Paul has seen the temptation that the church would rally around, would unify around something other than the Lord that they would rejoice in something other than the Lord. He has seen people try to get the church to unify around circumcision. He, he saw the day that, the church, that they tried to get the church to, to unify around not eating animals uh, that, uh, with the blood. He saw the day that the church tried to unify again, around the ethno-nationalism of Judaism. And he was, he's, he's going to... From, from kind of, a, like I said, kind of through the back door, give Philippi the same exhortation and warning about Judaism that he's given so many times before in Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and 1 Timothy. And we see that beginning in, chapter, or in verse 2 of chapter 3. Verses 2 and 3, he says, Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul gives a threefold warning here. Beware of three things, he says. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of what he calls the concision. Now, this is a really interesting set of warnings, right? If you ever read that and said, wow, Paul must have really been afraid of dogs, you know, <laughs> he must really have been a cat person or something, but not, certainly not what's being said here, right? The, worst of, word of, the use of the word dog in relation to people, which is what's happening here, is actually very common in the scriptures and somewhat deeply rooted in the culture, the Eastern, Near Eastern culture of the day. Not even necessarily just a, just a Jewish thing, it was more of a of a Near Eastern thing. A dog was considered in that culture to be a very base beast. He was a mongrel. He was a beggar. He was a thief. He, they saw them of, of little true worth. Uh, these would be wild dogs, right? Not man's best friend type thing, but wild dogs. Very, you know, when, when Elijah says that Jezebel would fall out of the tower and that the dogs would lick up her blood and whatnot. We were talking about wild dogs there, right? We're talking about uh, dogs that would be around begging and these sorts of things. A dog was a very derogatory term, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, for a certain type of person, for a type of person who uh, was outside of something else, uh, of, uh, maybe outside of cleanliness. Um, it would be used regularly to talk about uh, anyone outside of, of God's covenant, uh, as if they are not necessarily fully human, right? It's a bigoted term in some senses, not always, not in every sense, uh, but we do see it regularly in the scriptures. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 18. We see in the law that there was a law as it related to dogs. Thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow. For even both these are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Interesting. We see the hire of a whore and the price of a dog being equated there. Psalm 59, verse 6. They return at evening, they make a noise like a dog and go around about the city, speaking of a noise that um, would, would be a wild noise, right? A untamed noise. Psalm 59, continuing then in verses 14 and 15. 
and at evening let them return and let them make a noise like a dog and go round about the city. Let them wander up and down for meat and grudge if they be not satisfied, as a dog would, right? As a, a wild dog would, would be rooting around in trash bins and would be begging and would be um, um, uh, stealing from wherever he could get it. So too would be this idea here. In 1 Samuel 17, we see Goliath use the concept. Verse 43, And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, right? So, so he said, Do you think so little of me that you can just chase me away with a stick? Am I a dog? Right? That same idea. 2 Samuel 16, verse 9, Abishai, is he speaking of Shimei, the, the man who as David was leaving the city when Absalom uh, overtook, and he's cursing him? And we read there, Then said Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, unto the king, Why should this dead dog curse the, my lord the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. Right? Let me just lop off his head. He's nothing but a dead dog. And he calls him a dead dog because he's as good as dead for what he's doing to the Lord's anointed. And he's a dog because he's not even worthy of, of holding a, a candle to the king. Right? He, he, is a mong, he has a mongrel. This man, Shimei, has a mongrel quality about him, as it were. 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 13, And Hazael said, But what, is thy servant a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord hath showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. So once again, it's uh, uh, Elisha giving Hazael commands as Hazael was going to go back and uh, eventually assassinate uh, his master and take over as king of Syria. So we see among both Jew and Gentile, by metaphor and quite literally, dogs were seen as filthy, untamed, mongrels, People would call dogs or would call others dogs as a deeply derogatory remark directly related to a person's character and worth as a human being. Now, the same meaning is actually used in the New Testament. Specifically, we know from history that the Jews called the Gentile nations by virtue of the fact that they were outside of the covenant dogs. But the term would be used once again to speak to the, of those who were unclean unworthy by virtue of their own character, or maybe unworthy by virtue of their position. It wasn't always a bigoted thing. It was sometimes just a description of one who is outside of something that would be better. Jesus used the metaphor, in fact, several times, didn't he? Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Give not that which is holy unto dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. My wife has a real problem when we give something which is holy unto our dog, right? The idea is not something that is, is, is actually holy in a religious sense, but something which is good, something which is valuable, something which is sanctified. Uh, our dog can eat the scraps of our dinner, but when I make a, a bunch of meat for dinner, we don't make one for the dog, right? You don't give that which is holy unto dogs. You don't give that which is good for human consumption unto dogs. The dogs don't need it, and, it, and they're not worth that. right? This is good food that can go into the mouth of a human being who has so much more value than a dog. Now, this may offend someone uh, online. I don't think it would offend anyone in the room. It may offend someone online because there's a lot of people nowadays who their dogs are their babies, right? And they actually make them meatloaf and all of these things. And, and, and yet, what, and again, I'm not <laughs> preaching for or against that. All I'm saying is the principle and the way that Near Eastern society saw dogs is that, that same idea of don't give good stuff 
to dogs. If it's good for human consumption, don't waste it on a dog. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Same idea. It's just two different ways of saying the same thing as Jesus would, would speak to it. And then we see in Matthew 15, 26. But he answered and said, it is not meat, it's not appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. He uses the same analogy, right? That dogs are not worthy of that which is good for children. But here it was a Gentile woman asking for help, right? And he said, it's not good that I take the bread that's for the children. That would be an analogy to Israel and give it unto dogs, to the Gentiles, to those for whom I have not come. And of course, she says, master, even the dogs eat the crumbs from off the that, that, that fall off the table, right? And Jesus rewards her in, um, in response to her faith. But what Jesus is saying there is, woman, you are not my commission. My commission is unto Israel, to the, to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. I'm not going to, and, and, and so I'm going to focus on my ministry, right? He wasn't being unkind or bigoted or anything. He was just telling her the nature of his ministry, so when we come to the description here in Philippians chapter 3 then, verse 2, we must ask, who are these dogs? And we can take a couple of different approaches to this interpretation. The difficult approach, the ambiguous approach, the one that would make our job really, really hard would be to assume that these three warnings are about three different people, three different types of people, that there are dogs, that there are evil workers, and that there is a group that is the concision and so we bear the burden of wondering about all three of these and which one is which. And while that is, of course, a possibility, I don't believe that that's what Paul is saying here. Not only is that interpretively difficult, so that would not necessarily be our first choice anyway, but as Paul continues through his teaching in verses 4 through the rest of the end of the chapter, really, he's going to focus in on only one particular set of people. And the fact that he warns, he gives this threefold warning, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. And then he narrows it down to this particular set of people, the Judaizers, causes me to think contextually that all three of these descriptions are of the same type of, the same subset of people. The dogs are the evil workers, are the concision. They are dogs, they are evil workers, they are the concision. And what this would be is this would be almost like a funnel of narrowing. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, narrowing in on who it is that Paul is talking about. The idea that they would be dogs means that they are people who, by virtue of their unbelief, are outside of the covenant of grace, they are outside of salvation, they are outside of, of sound doctrine. That they are evil workers means that God is not in their thoughts. We'll see this actually in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3. He describes them as, he says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. That's a pretty good description of both dogs, as we would see it in Scripture, and of evil workers. And then the third word here is the word concision. And this gives us the greatest insight into exactly who these people are, who we, as we're interpreting it, as I'm interpreting it this evening, who are these dogs and these evil workers, who are unbelievers, who are outside of the covenant of grace, and who are workers, active workers of evil. And he calls them the concision. 
Now in our English, the English word concision means to cut short or to excise something, to remove something, the removers, the cut shorters. But the Greek word here is literally the mutilators. Paul is using very harsh language here, derogatory language, if I may put it that way, referencing this group of people who are dogs, evil workers, and thus the concision. He's saying these people who are Judaizers, the idea of mutilation, the idea of cutting short, that's circumcision. He's talking about physical circumcision. Now, he's not saying that circumcision is evil. He is speaking to a subset of people who are demanding that the church submit themselves to the law. These false teachers who are coming into churches, undermining grace in the churches. Paul would go so far in Galatians as to call it another gospel, right? This is very important to him. And here he calls them the mutilators. Those that are demanding that you, you alter your body in order to find some right standing with God. He's pulling no punches here as he, as he speaks of this description. He speaks of those who believe that circumcision and the keeping of the law were necessary unto salvation, who put confidence in their flesh and in their works and in their capacity to make themselves worthy of God as a way to live. They're dogs, he says, outside the covenant, no understanding, men who have rejected the truth and are so unworthy of the church's attention and are only worthy effectively of the church's caution. They're not even worthy, as, as, he would, as we would relate it to what Jesus said, they are not the ones that we would cast our holy bread unto. They are not the ones that we, we, we would not cast our pearls before that swine. They're that, they're that far gone, right? That's the idea. This is the warning. They are evil workers. Talked already about verses 17 and 18. God is their belly, driven by the flesh. Men who are convinced that through the flesh they can be right with God by the fact that they're circumcised, by the fact that they have married themselves to some measure of legal zeal. And in a word, they're false teachers, right? Men whom Peter and Jude warn about. If you read 2 Peter chapter 2, or if you read the epistle of Jude, you see very, very strong language as it relates to these men who have a, an understanding of the truth but have not received the truth. They know the truth and then they see in a connection to the truth a means by which to fleece the flock of God, a means by which to tear people's lives apart and gain, the, gain money through it. And so they piggyback onto the truth. They use the, 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 the vernacular. They use the lingo. But all the while knowing exactly what they're doing. Thinking that gain is godliness, right? Seeking unto that gain while drowning in perdition. These are the ones that, that are being warned about here. This is why Paul is using such harsh language here. False teachers. These men are dangerous. They're dedicated to their deceits. They have ruined Christians' lives. They have ruined Christian families. They have ruined churches. So Paul says, beware. And he contrasts them with believers. He says, for we are the circumcision, not them. This is how we know Paul's statement about concision speaks of Judaizers. 
We know that when he says concision, when he says the mutilators, he's speaking of physical circumcision. Why? Because he contrasts it with we are, we are the circumcision, not them. Right? Not someone who has physically circumcised his, his boys. They're not the circumcision. The circumcision are those who worship God in spirit. Those who rejoice in the Lord, right? Who rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Do you see that how, how he contrasts the ability to rejoice in the Lord with having confidence in the flesh? Because what is the concision doing? What is the Judaizer doing? What is, what is the, 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 the moralizer doing? What is the person even who is living in disunity? And it may be that some of the disunity in the church was over something as it related to a legal standard. We don't, we don't know that. But whether it was or whether it wasn't, what Paul is implying there is that they're not rejoicing in Christ Jesus. They're not rejoicing in grace. They're rejoicing in themselves. They're rejoicing in their works. They're rejoicing in their efforts. They're rejoicing in the law. The law is their rejoicing. He says, but we're the circumcision. We worship God in spirit. We don't worship God through idols. We don't worship God through physical sacrifices. We don't worship God through cutting our flesh. We don't worship God in those ways. We worship God in spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. We have no confidence in our flesh. We have no confidence that the things we do and don't do is going to earn us the merit with God by which we can be redeemed. We have no confidence in the flesh. And I, I regret having to stop here. I encourage you to read on because from this point on, what do we get? Paul says, if anybody could have confidence in the flesh, I could, right? Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of tribe of Be uh, Benjamin, uh, he, uh, 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 Hebrew of the Hebrews, uh, uh, as pertaining to the law of Pharisee, right? So he's talking about the law here. There's no way we can get around the fact he's talking not just about circumcision. He's talking about about keeping the law. He's talking about being a Jew. He's talking about being of the tribe of Benjamin. He's talking about being a Pharisee. Those are the things that he calls having confidence in the flesh. And he says, I gave all of that up when I followed Christ because I don't rejoice in the flesh. I don't rejoice in the, 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 the law. I rejoice in Christ. And that's an important context. Now, again, we're not, we're not there, but just to remind you that what I'm saying, it, that's this is the basis for what I'm saying here. We've got a glimmer of it. We'll continue it as we continue through the passage. Now, in the Old Testament economy, God required that those who were a part of the nation of Israel would be circumcised on the eighth day as a sign of them entering into the covenant of the nation of Israel. That would be the covenant that would eventually be established as the Mosaic Covenant, as this unique relationship between God and a physical, earthly family of people. And by entering into that covenant, circumcision being a sign that you entered into that covenant, you were thus ushered into the blessings and the cursings of the Mosaic Law. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then solidified, specified in the days of Moses. So circumcision was the identifying mark of those who were recipients of God's Mosaic Covenant. Now, God will return and he will continue to finish and fulfill that covenant with Israel. Romans chapter 11 tells us that God has not cast off those whom he has foreknown because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. So that's coming again. But after Israel's rejection of Messiah, God made a new covenant, right? A new covenant 
with all who would believe, not contingent upon your birth, not contingent upon your, your ethnicity, not contingent upon male or female, not contingent upon Jew or Gentile, but all who would believe. And that new covenant is a covenant of grace called the new covenant. Now, as we look at what Romans chapter 11 says, Paul gives the illustration of an olive tree, right? And he says that if God has seen fit to cut off the natural branches and to graft into that tree wild olive branches, that is his business. And he implies that that is what God has done with the Gentile world, that the wild olives have been grafted into the olive tree of God's purpose, right? So now we have been... Uh, for this time, called by God as a part of the church to be rightly related to God so that we can show the world how to be rightly related to God, a commission which Israel once had but failed at doing and will once again have the right and opportunity to do in the tribulation period and into the millennial kingdom. And so we are in this time. Thus, what Paul is saying here is that for this time, whereas Israel was that unique group of, of people, and, and they had this unique covenant with God, and that unique covenant with God was, was uh, God choosing them to use them to reach this world. And the sign of that was, was physical circumcision. Paul says, now we are the circumcision. doesn't mean that we have replaced Israel in that sense. We'll talk about that more next week. But what it does mean is that we have taken over for Israel the commission that God has given to his people to reach the world for him. It is now the commission of the church. It is not the commission of Israel. The way we describe it is God has set Israel aside for this time and he's using the church. Again, we'll talk more about that next week. So come back. This covenant, as we know from Scripture, requires no physical act, no visible act, or demands nothing visible for its recipients. And it certainly did not require circumcision. Paul explicitly taught this any number of times, right? Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature, right? Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. As a matter of fact, as Paul would uh, go to the Jerusalem council, he brought with him Titus, who he had explicitly encouraged not to get circumcised and showed that Titus was in fact a man in whom was the Spirit of God, though he had not submitted himself to the law of Moses. So we see this throughout Paul's ministry, right? And yet all throughout Paul's ministry, he was in constant conflict with people teaching the church that they must be circumcised to be saved or they must keep the law which no man can keep in order to be right with God and have right standing with God, or they must submit themselves to the feasts and the ordinances and the traditions which God has fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So that Paul would say in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of, sin, of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. This is the circumcision that we are, right? We are the circumcision. What kind of circumcision? Not that we have cut our flesh, but that we have put off the body of sin by Christ having circumcised us unto himself, having set us apart unto himself, right? Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Now, the fact that we are risen through the faith, right, shows that we are, this is not 
water baptism, but this is spiritual baptism. Buried with him by baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life. Raised through faith, not raised through the preacher pulling you out of the water, right? I don't, I don't put you in the water and say, okay, your faith had better raise you and hold you down and see if your faith can get you up, right? We are raised through faith because this is spiritual baptism as it is a spiritual circumcision. We see in uh, um, thus that we are the circumcision. We are those chosen of God and ushered into this covenant of grace through faith. No man enters into this covenant through, the, uh, through confidence in the flesh. No man enters into this covenant through outward acts of devotion. We are, we are they who worship God in spirit. And, as I just mentioned, here it is, and rejoice in Christ Jesus. And this brings us back to verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. Not, don't rejoice in yourself. Don't rejoice in your own personal marks of righteousness. Don't rejoice in your own ability to maintain some sort of legal standard. Don't rejoice in your understanding at the expense of others. Let him that glorieth, Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah 9.24, glory in this. Right? He says, let not the rich man glory in his riches. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. We are they who worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. We have spoken for weeks of how selfishness strips the church of its unity. Disunity strips the church of its testimony. And it is inevitable in this case that we find ourselves stripped of the joy that is in the Lord. When our confidence rests in ourselves, upon some work, upon some effort, upon some merit, upon some standing, upon some understanding, upon some knowledge, when we seek our own at the expense of others, when we elevate ourselves, though we might rejoice, it's a deceitful rejoicing, it's an insidious rejoicing. For we rejoice, <coughs> excuse me, in ourselves. We are rejoicing in results. We are rejoicing, rejoicing in our results. We are rejoicing in our victories. But we are called, much to the contrary, to rejoice in the Lord. To guard ourselves against those who would divert our attention from that rejoicing in Christ Jesus. To guard ourselves from those who might cause us to rest in some measure of confidence in our flesh. And instead, we are called to rejoice in Christ Jesus. To turn our eyes upon Jesus. To allow Him to fill our minds, to be as he is, our all in all. And so we bear the mind of Christ. And so that brings about unity and that brings about testimony and that brings about joy. And the question we ask is this then. Are you rejoicing? And it, as you are, or if you are, what is truly the object of your rejoicing this evening? Are you operating within this, the scope and the context of God's system and thus rejoicing in the Lord? Or have you been duped in some way, shape, or form into some measure of rejoicing in yourself? The call to rejoice in the Lord by setting aside any carnal confidence and placing our confidence in Christ alone. Is this you 
this evening? Or have you been, to one degree or another, either duped or diverted? You've sought into your own merit. You've sought into your own effort. You've sought into your own thinking. You've sought into your own priorities to define your relationship with God or to define your relationship with others. Christ has forged this path that we follow, enabled through the blood of his cross, exemplified in the selflessness of his life and the selflessness of his death, so that we might then look to the cross, allow self to be overshadowed by the life and example of our Lord, and rejoice in him alone. And what you'll find, Christian, something which we'll establish well over the next several weeks, is that when you set yourself aside, even the good things, we're not just talking about, about the, the things that I want in a truly selfish way, but what Paul's going to talk about, as we'll see over the next several weeks, of the, some of the things he had to set aside was his loyalty to his heritage, his loyalty to Pharisaism, all of those things, all of those good, righteous, by, by a moral standard, things that he has done. He had to say, I've worked so hard throughout my whole life, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, learning the Pentateuch, all of these things, and none of it has any true standing before God in itself. None of it. I count it all but dung. It's nothing but refuse, if only I may win Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. I rejoice in the Lord alone. And this will change the way we view life, won't it? The way we, we view our trials, the way we view our suffering, the way we view our persecutions, the way we view our interactions one with another. Because our rejoicing is not in ourselves. Our rejoicing is not when people agree with us. Our rejoicing is not when we feel good. Our rejoicing is not in some outward exposition of, of, of our lives or, or of our faith. Our rejoicing is in the Lord. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.